Uh, this afternoon, I took a break from my classwork to watch some football, and I got to thinking about how my brother was supposed to go and play college football on a scholarship, but something changed that affected those plans. He played football through high school and was really good as a lineman, but he started having these really bad migraines all the time. So my parents took him to the doctor. Woo, there I am. My parents took him to the doctor, and they ran some tests on his brain, did some scans and stuff, and found that there was nothing wrong. They, they didn't find anything conclusive. And so they released him and sent him on and just gave him some medications to say, you know, that'll help you with your headaches. Well, he goes to the school that he's supposed to go to, and they have him do a physical, and during this physical, they're asking about any issues, and he mentions the migraines. And so they send him in to another doctor, and this doctor does a little more thorough investigation because, you know, if something happens to him while he's playing college football, the college would then be responsible for that. So they do a scan, they do an x-ray, and find that he had broken his neck, and they hadn't caught it. And this was what was causing the migraines, was that the, there was some nerve damage in his neck. And so he wasn't able to get that college football scholarship because if he got hit in the wrong way, it could leave him either paralyzed or dead. And so he had to pl change his plans. And so that was the bad news. But the good news was he now knew the reason that he had migraines. He knew the root cause, the heart of the problem wasn't his head, but his neck. The Ten Commandments are the foundation for the rest of God's law. All the additional laws expand on these laws, providing more specific application in certain situations and, and things that relate directly to the nation of Israel. But they're the heart of the whole law. And as we look at these Ten Commandments, this first law is really the heart of of those Ten Commandments. So we're going to look tonight at the heart of the heart because the rest of the law is simply symptoms, the effect of following this first law. So if you would look with me at the first commandment in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the place of slavery in this first law, do not have other gods besides me. You know, Moses starts us off by recording that the Lord is the one who came and gave the law. So tonight I want us to look, first of all, we're going to look at two different aspects of this passage. First, we're going to look at the nature of the lawgiver, and then we're going to look at the nature of the law. So let's start with the nature of the lawgiver. See, laws reflect the people who created those laws. They reflect something about the people who created them. And so recently, the state of Texas passed a law that's called the Texas Heartbeat Act. It's making all kinds of news all over the world. It is a law that bans abortion, outlaws abortion, once a baby's heartbeat can be detected. And science tells us that approximately six weeks after conception, a heartbeat can be detected. And so this tells us something about the people of the legislature of Texas. 
They believe that life begins with a heartbeat. They believe that that six-week-old fetus is a person. They believe that such a person should be allowed to live. And like I said, this is a controversial law, and I don't really understand it, and that's being challenged, but that's not my point. My point is that this tells us something about the legislature of Texas, and ideally, if the legislature reflects the people of Texas, it tells us something about the people of Texas. Well, Exodus 20 begins with the lawgiver. It begins with God. It begins with Yahweh. God spoke the law to the people of Israel. This isn't Moses' law. This is God's law. And he spoke directly to his people, giving the laws directly to them. And so since the law reflects the person's nature, we begin by looking at the lawgiver. Who is God? If you look at laws and you look at the U.S. Constitution as an example, the U.S. Constitution begins with, we the people of the United States. It identifies the source of law as being the people of the United States. And similarly, God begins by introducing himself as the source, saying, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. So what is Yahweh? Who is Yahweh? Yahweh is God's personal name. In Exodus chapter 3, God appeared to Moses in a burning bush and commanded him to go back to Egypt, to where the Hebrews were living in slavery, to go get his people and to lead them out of Egypt into the wilderness to go and to worship him. And there, God reveals his name to Moses. When Moses says, who should I say sent me? God says, tell them, Yahweh, I am sent you. I am who I am. And this name connotes a, a sovereign, an almighty God. Because just simply saying, I am, is the ultimate statement of a self-sufficient, self-existent, and immediately present God. So God's existence is not contingent upon anybody else. All these other gods required a person to create them, but God was uncreated. He was there before. He has always existed. He promises that he will be what he always has been, the eternally unchanging, constant God. He stands eternally present, unchangeable, and completely sufficient in and of himself and his triune nature as Father and Son and Spirit, he doesn't need anybody else. He does what he will do, and he accomplishes whatever he wills to accomplish. So he is the sovereign creator God we find in this name. This phrase refers to an active, a dynamic, and a creative being. In other words, he is the creator God. Some scholars have translated the phrase to say he brings into existence whatever exists. And we know if we look at Genesis, this is what the Bible tells us. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all the things that fill them. The only thing that exists that is not created is God himself. And so he is the powerful ruler of all. He has great power. 
And the Israelites should have no question of to God's power because they had seen it. They had been in Egypt. They had been in slavery and they had seen God do some, mighty, some, some mighty miraculous acts to free them. He had seen the ten plagues of Egypt. They had seen God deliver them through the waters of the Red Sea. And even here, as they're preparing to, to get the law from God, look what happens in Exodus 19 and verse 16. It says, On the third day, when the morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people in the camp shuddered. So loud that they, their bodies shuddered. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. So there could be no doubt in their mind as they're receiving this great power of the lawgiver. He is the almighty God, the sovereign creator of the universe. But notice that although he is the mighty creator, he's not some distant ruler. He didn't just set creation into motion and sit back and watch it. He's intimately involved with his creation. Not only did he give Israel his personal name, but notice how he chooses to give them his law. Moses gathered the people of Israel at the base of Mount Sinai so that they could what? What does it say? So that they could meet God. So that they could know God. And there at the base of Mount Sinai, God gives his law. And he says to them, I am your God. I am the Lord, your God. You know, this is interesting. It's, it's a singular phrase rather than a plural phrase. He's not saying, I'm y'all's God. He says, I'm your God. I'm your God. I'm your God. It's personal. God wasn't speaking in general terms. He says, each individual, I am your God, and I want to have a relationship with you. You know, for many, God exists as some concept, as some idea, as some force that's out there. and You can't really have a relationship with this concept it doesn't make sense to have a relationship with a concept. For example, I can't have a relationship with mathematics. And even if I did, I wouldn't want to because I don't like them. But Yahweh is not some abstract idea. While most of the world believes in a God that is an impersonal being, the God of the Bible is revealed to be a personal God. What do I mean by personal I mean that he is a person. In fact, he is three persons in one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And he wants to have a relationship with you. The, the idea of a person means that he is rational. It means that he is conscious of his own being. And it means that he is capable of having a relationship with you. And that's what he wants. He wants to have a not only a relationship, but an intimate relationship with his creation. So he comes to them and he says, I am the Lord, your God. So not only is he the sovereign creator, he's a personal being, he's a relational being, but notice that there was a problem. 
There was a problem. There was a hindrance to the relationship between God and Israel. They were stuck in Egypt. They were enslaved to people who worshipped other gods. The Pharaoh wouldn't let them go and worship their god. They were in need of a rescue. They were in need of deliverance. And so God reminds the people of Israel what he had already done for them. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. I am the Lord who has delivered you. I am the Lord who has redeemed you from your captors. And it is on the basis of this already salvific relationship that he wants to go even further. He wants to have a deep, intimate relationship with them. So obedience to this law is not on this idea of this, these laws that are just set up and you just follow these laws and there's, it's impersonal. It does, that's not what's going on here. But rather, obedience to the law is established in a relationship that already exists with God and is the response to the relationship that God had already initiated with them. You know, we're a lot like Israel in some ways, probably more than we'd like to admit. We've all been enslaved. We've all been enslaved to sin. We've all been members of the kingdom of darkness we're, who's not allowing us to go and to worship Yahweh. But just like God redeemed Israel from Egypt, he has delivered us through his only begotten son. Jesus died on the cross and he was resurrected from the dead in order to deliver us from the curse of death and from the domain of darkness. Listen to what Colossians chapter 1 says. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's on the basis of this redemption, this this relationship that he's already established with us, that we come to the Lord, that we don't just obey these commands because they're written on a page, because they're chiseled in stone, but because we have a relationship with the Lord who gave them. And he's written, Scripture says, in the New Covenant, he's written his law on the hearts of those who follow him. So we see the nature of the lawgiver is a loving redeemer who seeks to have a relationship with us. So then he gives us this first command here in verse 3. Do not have other gods besides me. Don't have any other gods. This, this commandment flows directly out of God's own nature. It's the fundamental Commandment that lays the foundation for all the commands that are to come later. But this is really a simple command, right? The God who gave this law is the one true creator, redeemer, God. And scripture tells us repeatedly, he is a jealous God. He will not share his glory with anyone else. He will not acknowledge any other genuine rivals for his attention because he has no legitimate rivals. However, this is one of those situations where we find it's easy to say I love God. It's hard to actually love him. Look at what happens with Israel. He reminded them that he had brought them out of Egypt. Well, what do we know about Egypt? 
Egypt was polytheistic to the extreme. Polytheism means that they believed in more than one God, and man, did they have more than one God? In fact, they had at least, I counted, at least 11 gods that are associated with different aspects of the sun. They had a God for everything. And they expected the Israelites to worship these gods. And so Israel was coming out of this polytheistic culture, and and God says, give up all those past gods. Give up all those things that aren't me. You know, this is a new thing. None, no other ancient civilization could claim or would claim that they had the only God. Now, they would, they would say, you know, this nation is going to worship this God, this nation is going to worship this God. And when they merged or when they were conquered, they would begin worshiping other gods. They might still worship their God, but they'd, you know, maybe... Our God wasn't as powerful as this God, so we're going to still worship him, but we're going to worship this God. In fact, most of the cultures didn't have one God at all anyways, because usually they came in pairs. You had a God, and then you had the God's consort, the male and the female version. But here God was saying all those other gods, all those past gods that you had, get rid of them and focus solely on on me because I am the one who delivered you from that polytheistic enslaved nation. Yahweh refuses to acknowledge the legitimacy of any other God. And repeatedly the Bible says that there are no other true gods. Everything else is just false. Listen to Isaiah in verse uh, chapter 45. Speak up and present your case. Yes, let them consult each other. Who predicted this long ago and who announced it from ancient times? Was it not I, the Lord? And then he says this, There is no other God but me, a righteous God and Savior. There is no one except me. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 8 of the first, his first letter about eating food sacrificed to idols, and we know that an idol is nothing in this world. And that there is no God but one. So here God says, don't bring other gods before me. Don't bring other gods beside me. Literally, the phrase is saying, don't have other gods all up in my face. Because they are false. It's insulting. It's implying that God is not enough to meet your needs. And we know that he is. He is a need-meeting God. He is completely sufficient meet our every need. And so what this comes down to is an, it's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of the heart. It's a personal commandment. Here God is once again speaking in the singular. He says, you do not have other gods before me, beside me, in my face. You shall have no other gods because I am the only one. This is a, a personal exclusive relationship that he wants to have with you. It's an issue of the heart. Listen to the positive restatement that Moses gives to this command over in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, listen Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, and with all your strength. This commandment is to solidify the relationship that Yahweh had initiated with Israel. It was the same for Christ to us. We have the relationship established first. He comes first as our Savior and then as our Lord. The Bible speaks of the relationship between God and Israel using the language of marriage. Yahweh is the husband. Israel is the wife. In the New Testament, the church is the bride and Christ is the bridegroom. So I'm going to use the same metaphor. So if I go with this idea, if I truly love my wife, which I do, I will not seek relationships with other women. Now, that's not to say I won't be friends with other women, but what I mean is I will find the fulfillment of my relational needs in her. I will spend my time with her, share my secrets with her, share my life with her. I will find the fulfillment of my sexual needs in her. I will not have relationships like that with other women. I will have an exclusive relationship with her in that way. So I'll not bring other women to that same type of relationship that I have with my wife. But additionally, if I truly love my wife, then I'll seek to demonstrate my love toward her. This is more than just simple loyalty, because I want to do things that make her happy. Why? Because I love her. So Chelsea doesn't like to do the dishes. So much so that one of Joan's jobs is to load and unload the dishwasher. So, you know, put the 10-year-old on it. Well, if I come in, you know what happens? 10-year-olds don't always do what they're supposed to do. So I come in and I see the dishes piled up. What can I do to show my wife that I love her? Wash the dishes, right? I've been doing that. I was in the Army. We did KP a lot. I know how to do that, right? So I walk in, I do the dishes, and that makes her happy. On the alternate hand, I personally like to watch horror movies. Chelsea thinks that The Little Mermaid is scary. So I don't watch scary movies. I don't watch movies with lots of gore, like I would have if I had married somebody else. But I avoid, <laughs> I avoid those with her, because I know they will make her unhappy. Why do I do that? Why do I sacrifice my love of horror films? Because I love my wife. And the same is true in our relationship with God. If I truly love God, then I will do the things that make God happy. I will honor my parents. I will set aside time to worship him. I will avoid doing things that make God unhappy, like sending, uh, or stealing or committing adultery or committing murder. Your actions reveal your heart. We open the service with, from Mark chapter 7. Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit. Self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things are coming from within and defiling the person. 
So if you love God, you'll act, you'll live like you love God. But if you love something else more than God, that will distort your actions. So let me give you some tests of the heart. Test number one, what do you love? What do you love? Origen wrote, what each one honors before all else, what before all things he admires and loves, this for him is God. Paul describes what happens in our lives in Romans chapter 1 and verse 25. He writes, they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. The Bible says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created all things to fill the heavens and the earth. And he looked upon it and he said, what? It is good. But when we elevate things that are good to God's place, when we love the things that God has created more than we love God, it warps our behavior. So let's look at just a couple of examples here. As a, as a father, I want my children to grow up to obey proper authority. Because I don't want them out disobeying the law and getting thrown into prison and just generally ruining their lives because of their attitudes. Well, obedience of proper authority is a good thing. But if I love obedience more than I love God, then I begin exhibiting controlling behavior rather than exhibiting loving behavior toward them. Or let's say a young woman desires a spouse. A husband is a good thing, but then let's say she loves that relationship more than she loves God. She starts going behind her parents' back to go date him. She moves off to college, and her parents have forbidden her to see him, but she still goes and and dates him without their knowing. And the next thing her parents know, here she comes saying, Mom and Dad, I'm getting married to this guy you don't like. And by the way, I'm pregnant. And then years and years down the line, she and her husband are fighting back and forth. And we're wondering what's going on. They come to the pastor and say, Hey, we're having marital problems. Your foundation of your whole relationship was based on the love of the relationship rather than on the love of God. It causes all kinds of problems. What about success? We all want to be successful in our work, right? The, the book of Proverbs tells us the importance of being diligent in our work, of doing our work well, doing it for the Lord. Success and work is a good thing. But if we love success more than we love God, then anxiety starts to sit in because we're trying to to make sure everything's going perfect so we can have success. And, and when it doesn't go right, we're all concerned and worried about it. Instead of loving God and trusting it to Him. Loving good things more than God leads to ungodly behavior. And these things become elevated to be functional gods. So we must ensure that we love nothing more than we love God. So let me ask you this. What do you love more than you love God. The second test is what do you trust? What do you trust? Martin Luther said, whatever thy heart clings to and relies upon, that is properly God. 
If you would turn with me over to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17. God lays out some instructions for the king, king of Israel. Notice these prohibitions beginning in verse 16. However, he, that is the king, must not acquire many horses for himself or send the people back to Egypt to acquire many horses, for the Lord has told you, you are never to go back that way again. What does this mean? The gathering of many horses represents military strength. The king wasn't supposed to put his trust in his military strength. He was to trust in the Lord, not in his power, not in his influence. Think of Gideon. Gideon went to go fight 100,000 Midianites, and he had this great army, right? He did. He said, no, that's too many. No, that's too many. No, that's too many. Until he only had 300 men to go up 100,000. And the Lord gave him the victory. And Judges says it was so that he would not trust, that he would not praise his military might, but on the power of God for victory. Maybe you trust in your abilities or your education or your experience more than you trust God. Anybody like Marvel movies? Right? Dr. Stephen Strange was a great surgeon. He had the education, he had the experience, he had the skills. He took great pride in his work and he became quite arrogant, right? But then a car crash, and all of a sudden his hands don't work right. He could no longer do the work for which he was renowned. And he fell into a depression, he was desperately seeking a, a solution. When you place your faith and your trust in your in your might, in your power, in your skills, and everything's going well, then you puff up yourself. Look at how great I am. But when you put your faith and your trust in your skills, and all of a sudden they fail you, and they will fail you, what do you do then? But Scripture tells us that God never fails. Dr. Spivey this morning Quoted from Psalm 20, some take pride in chariots and others in horses, but we take pride in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we will rise and stand firm. Don't place your trust in your strength. Over the past few decades, it's become conventional wisdom that we should put our faith in our feelings. If we feel something, especially if we feel it intensely, then that deserves to be valid or truthful. How many of you have heard, you just need to trust your heart? Do what is right, trust your heart. But Deuteronomy 17 says, He must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. What did Solomon do? I'm sorry, what did David do? He had the power as king to see and have whatever he wanted. And he saw a married woman named Bathsheba, and he desired her in his heart. He had great feelings, great emotions toward her, said, 
go-getter. He create, had adultery with her. And then he deceived, he lied, and then he ultimately murdered to cover up his sin. Now, most of us won't likely have that kind of experience, and maybe you won't have this kind of experience either, but I see this all over the place. If you were overindulged as a child, and you grew up with the narcissistic assumption that the world revolved around you, and then you get out into the world and you find the world, in fact, does not revolve around you and you don't get whatever you want, then what happens when you meet the reality? You're going up to the manager. I need to speak to a manager. I'm not happy. Things aren't going the way that I want them to be. You're not doing what I want. There's great conflict. Your sense of entitlement leads to self-righteous anger, which leads has no justification. Proverbs, sorry, Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is more deceitful than anything else. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? But on the other hand, Proverbs chapter 3 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. So don't trust in your emotions, but trust in the Lord. Look at 17b there. He must not acquire very large amounts of silver and gold for himself. Why does this come? Because people put their faith and their trust in their money. And there's never enough. There's never enough. They keep needing more, needing more. When does it stop? It doesn't. You make decisions based on the financial implications. You lose love for people, you lose love for God, you lose compassion, and you're always concerned, right? Because what if the stock market crashes? What if the interest rates go up? How am I going to survive? It's all anxiety and fear because of your love of money. Jesus spoke substantially about this issue, but perhaps the most famous is Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters since either He will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot love both God and mammon or money. Paul made it clear in his letter to Timothy. He says, Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. King Solomon had tried all of these things. He had loved women, trusted his relationships. He had tried for money. He had tried for military might. Listen to what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. When I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile in a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Therefore, I hated life. I hated life because the work that was done under the sun, was distressing to me. For everything is futile in a pursuit of the wind. So your ultimate issue that you're experiencing in your life is not about low self-esteem. It's not about your needs being unmet. It's not about bad relationships that you've had. It's not about your past 
What happened to you is not about what's going on in your physical body. It's a heart issue. It's an issue of worship. It's a worship disorder. Because the heart of the law says that your heart should love the Lord. And if your heart doesn't love the Lord, everything else is just going to be out of whack. You cannot love the Lord, though, in your own power. It requires the power of the Holy Spirit living in you, working in you, leading you back to the heart of God. Loving God the way that God wants to be loved can only be accomplished when you've trusted in the name of Jesus Christ for your salvation, when you've been indwelt with his Holy Spirit to help you live a life loving God. Peter said in Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So here's my question for you today. If you're here and you are not a believer, would you believe? Would you repent of your sin? Would you trust Christ? And would you love the Lord? And if you're here and you are a believer, are you trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit to help you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength? Are you leaning on His power? Are you trusting in something else? Let's go to the Lord in prayer.